Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Is it? Yeah, it's on. Sweet. My name is Ryan Toller. Uh, happy Fourth of July. Uh, it's great. As Matt was saying earlier, it's great to be in a country that that allows us to express our freedom in Christ. And I don't want to take that for granted. So thankful for that. Uh, but. If you don't know me, I run the college program here at the chapel, and it is an absolute pleasure to do so. Uh, We got a July 4th party coming up tonight, and so I got to prep for that. But speaking of the college group, uh, we actually just took a trip to the mountains of Virginia, and some of you are thinking, wow, you took 20 native Floridians into the wilderness. You're crazy. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. And I'll tell you how I found out I was crazy, because I came to learn, I'm from South Carolina, so not native Floridian, so I backpacked uh, growing up, but my students didn't know the difference between camping, hiking, and backpacking. Camping, you show up in a car, you get out of your car, you put a tent down, the next morning you get back in your car and you go home. Uh, hiking, you show up in a car, you get out of your car, you hike up a mountain, then you get back in your car and you go home. Well, backpacking's a different animal. You show up with a 35 to 50 liter bag and you hike in with all of your stuff And so I knew I had made a, I had potentially made a a mistake by bringing all these students into the wilderness because a week before I left, I got a text asking where the outlets were going to be. And I thought, oh no. And then I got another text. I got another text asking uh, where the bathrooms were. And I'm like, oh, there's one bathroom. It's going to be all around us. And I'm not kidding. Two days before we left, I got a text asking how far the cabin was up the trail. And I recognized, oh no, this could be bad. But it wasn't bad, it was awesome. We had one of my favorite professors come from our college, his name's Trevor, and we did 12 sessions on discovering the mission of God on top of a beautiful mountain in Virginia. So it was awesome. What's also funny is I tried to train my, I tried to help my students know what to pack too. Like ramen noodles and tortillas with peanut butter and jelly, that stuff. But I'm sitting by the fire eating my ramen noodles, and this one student opens his bag and he pulls out two 16 ounce ribeyes. And I'm like, you just carried 32 ounces up a five mile high mountain. But he ate better than all of us, so that was, there's no doubt there. His name's Luke, some of you probably know him. But uh, it was a blast. We had a great time. Um, but my purpose here isn't to rave about the trip because we actually did, it was so much fun. Uh, My purpose is for us to be in Ephesians 3 to look at what God has has for us today. So if you could take your Bibles and turn there, that would be fantastic. As you're turning, you need to know something. Paul is about to, for four verses, he is going to qualify himself to say something really important. Okay, and so I'm like, Paul, you don't need four qualifications. You only need to tell me that you're one. But he's going to give us four reasons why he's going to say what he's going to say. So we're going to start in Ephesians 3, verse 1. And this is, this is what Paul's going to say. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So there's the first qualification. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Second, uh, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. There's the second one. He's a prisoner of Christ. He's a steward of God's grace that was given to him. Third qualification, that by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote to you in brief. So he's a prisoner, he's a steward, and he's also been told a mystery. Fourth qualification, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And so he's, he's looking at the Ephesians saying, hey, 
Look, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a steward of Christ. I have been told a mystery, but I also have insight into this mystery. So, so listen up. And we go into verse five, and he says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Pause. Don't look, don't look at the next verse. Uh, we are going to see that he's qualified himself, and maybe you caught it. He's, gonna, he's qualified himself to share this wonderful mystery, and he's going to say the mystery in verse six, but you're not allowed to read verse six, okay? And I see some heads down. No, don't read verse six. As a matter of fact, I need you to raise your right hands and repeat after me. I, insert your name, will not read verse six until Ryan tells me to, and I will give him $100. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Of course, the second part, I'm just kidding. But the first part, you've made a promise. You won't read verse six until I say so. And if you break that promise, you lose 50 heaven points, and I'll hold that against you. That, that's not a thing. But uh, why, why do I ask you not to read a verse in the Bible? And you're probably thinking, wow, I've never been told not to read the Bible before. Well, hopefully this is the only time. It is because if you read verse six, you will ruin what I am about to do for the next 30 minutes. And what I'm about to do has two goals. One, to reveal the mystery of Ephesians 3.6 by looking at the story, the progressive story of how God worked from Genesis really to the beginning of Revelation. We're gonna find out the mystery by looking at the whole story of scripture, which you'll see on your memos, there's a lot of stuff we gotta get going on. So uh, some of it's blank, so feel free to uh, fill out the chart as we go. You have blanks underneath it as well. Just be prepared. You will be drinking out of a fire hydrant today, and it will be so much, because we're starting at Genesis, and we'll basically end at the beginning of Revelation. So just prepare yourself. It's going to be a lot. Please, please give grace to me, because I might get ahead of myself over the slide, so I might have to jump back. But that's my first goal, that we would find the mystery through the overarching story of Scripture. And my second goal is that we would, well, we would not just find the mystery, but the mystery would have weight, that we would see its eternal significance because when I read verse six without looking at the story of scripture, I read it like I would a Facebook article. Like, oh, that's cool. But when I read verse six of chapter three in light of the whole story of scripture, the only thing I could say was thank you, Lord. And so that's my hope. Uh, stick with me. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, uh, something before we jump in is an encouragement that you would consider yourself a character as we progress, that you wouldn't think ahead, but you would envision yourself someone living at the time where we see God working. And this is all to find the mystery and provide weight to the mystery. So let's do it. Uh, step one, we see, you'll see three icons, a person, a tower, and an ark. The person shows, according to Genesis, that God created man, right? And God created man in a wonderful way. He breathed his life into him, and he revealed to man how man was supposed to live, that he was supposed to be in relationship with God. And he said, you are to have dominion over the world, to rule over it, name the animals, be fruitful, and multiply. And we have this amazing story of God walking with his creation. And we see it's very obvious that God creates a people. God creates a people. And we see it in the first three chapters of Genesis. But what happens? Not long after, we see God creates a people, but they reject him. They reject him. The one who created, they say, no, thank you. I'm going to choose something else. And so if we jump back to the first slide, we see this icon of a tower. And what happens? Well, 
Uh, you remember that command of the Lord to be fruitful and multiply? God looks at, man, it says be fruitful and ma- multiply, but man looks back up at God and says, no, I'd rather gather and build. And so the Tower of Babel happens and God spreads the nations in light of their sin. And then we, not long after, we get to this account where the wickedness of humanity has grown and God looks at man and says, repent of your wickedness. But then man looks back up at God and says, no, I'd rather revel in it. And so comes the flood to judge all of humanity, and we get the clear picture that God creates the people, but they have rejected them. And we get to a sad, very sad part where it appears the divine has made a divine mistake, and that the ones he created are now not wanting anything to do with him. And if I was a character at that time, I'm thinking, is he just going to walk away? Is he just going to let all of creation be judged and drowned? But here's where a very important principle is developed. And you can write this down, that God is not in a hurry. He is not in a hurry. Instead, God loves to grow things. He's not in a hurry. And that's going to be shown as we move through this chart. But it's also shown in the story of, uh, of creation that God didn't just snap his fingers and everything came into existence. He loves to grow things. He's not in a hurry. He took days to create the world, and I think me and you understand this in our relationship with him as well, that when we believed in Jesus, he didn't just snap his fingers and we became perfect. No, he's not in a hurry. He likes to grow things. That's what we call our sanctification, the process of me becoming more like Jesus. And this chart's gonna reveal that as well, that God has not lost control at this moment where the world is being judged, but a matter of fact that he is still in control and he is not in a hurry. And so we see... Uh, the second chart, we have this wonderful account in Genesis 12 and 15 that this man, man named Abraham steps up to the plate and we see, we, we are revealed that God is, is still working because uh, God is going to look at Abraham and he is going to give four of the great promises. And I'm convinced that these four promises are the roadmap for the entire uh, scripture. And so what he's gonna say is he's gonna say, God, God's gonna say to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I will give you a great people. I will give you a great land. I will give you a great nation. And, I, and through you, a great blessing will come to the entire world. And it's a roadmap for this whole chart, for the story of scripture. And if, if I'm one of Abraham's sons, you know what I'm thinking? Wow, God has been so Good to us. To the point, and we'll see this as another main theme, that God chooses Israel as a channel of his promise. And you might be thinking, Israel, I thought you just said he was talking to Abraham. Well, through Abraham will come the people of Israel. And from the get-go, we see God establishing a holy people to be about the filling of the earth with his glory. And they're not just a people being established. Uh, the people of Israel are going to be the channel for his promise, that wonderful blessing that's gonna go to the whole world. The people of Israel will be how that starts. And so we see that God is working for his people, Israel. And it's, it's very, very obvious, right? Excuse me. But the story continues. And what do we see? We see that Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to 12 sons. And you know that promise of a great people where it's a little closer because now they're not like three, they're an entire family. And we get into 
the point in the narrative where we see this story of a boy named Joseph. And uh, the rest of his brothers, the sons of Jacob, get angry at Joseph because he has the favoritism of his father and they sell him into slavery. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good as we see God working through Joseph to save Israel from famine and sin. And how does that happen? Well, God reveals a famine's coming to Egypt, but God also gives Joseph favor in the sight of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh puts Joseph in front, in charge of all the food distribution of Egypt, right? And when that famine comes, God, through Joseph, provides it so that the people don't starve. And do you know who shows up at the, the heat of the famine, the worst part of the famine? The brothers that sold him. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and says, I've forgiven you, but I, I'm not just going to forgive you. God is going to provide for you. And so Israel is saved from famine through Joseph. And, and they're even saved from sin because imagine if Joseph died in slavery. That would, would God or would the, his brothers been able to be fed? Uh, who knows? But so from famine and sin, God saves Israel. And it is a, it is a story uh, for the movies, right? And it shows that God is in control. And if I'm, a, if I'm one of the brothers of Joseph, I'm thinking, honestly, uh, God probably should have just saved Joseph. He's really been the only faithful one. And yet God is about the fulfilling of his promises because what do we see? In the chart, you'll notice there's a guy with a red crown. The red crown is symbolizing uh, the person of Judah. And through Judah will come that great blessing to the whole world. And so it is great that the whole nation of Egypt was saved, but it's even greater that the promised people of God are saved and that promise of a, of a blessing that's gonna bless the whole world is still in the works, and we see that through the person of Judah. And so the story continues, and uh, sadly, a Pharaoh shows up on the scene who generations after Joseph dies, he doesn't remember what Joseph did, and he gets fearful because the Israelites are becoming great. They're becoming big. And so what does he do? He enslaves the people of Israel, right? He enslaves them, but then he starts trying to kill their firstborn. And do you know what happens as God's people are enslaved and God's people's children are being killed? Well, we see that God grows Israel to be a great people even when they are enslaved. And why do I think that's so crazy? I think that's so crazy because God is not interested in Israel fulfilling his promises by themselves. Meaning, Israel isn't set up in this land where they're just kind of living as they want, there's no one harming them, they're, they're growing, they're, they're being blessed. No, God fulfills the first of the four great promises while his people are enslaved and their kids are being killed. Why? Because it magnifies who he is, right? That, that God is not interested in his people fulfilling their own promises because a people would not be great while they're being enslaved and their firstborns are being killed unless they had an almighty God behind them. And so God fulfills this promise in the most impossible, in the most supernatural way. And I, and I think it is, it is amazing. And if I'm, a, if I'm a current century Israelite, I'm thinking, oh, goodness, God, God has made us a great people even in such hard times. And so we see in the next graphic, yes, that is an E representing of Egypt. And all the little dots are Israel and they are in bondage. But they become a great people. And this guy named Moses steps on the scene. And Moses is to lead his people out of 
bondage, but what happens? The Pharaoh resists, and so God sends 10 plagues to Egypt. In the 10th plague, God tells Moses, Moses, tell the people uh, that you are to kill a spotless lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, will pass over your household. And the households that don't have the blood, that, that wrath will enter in. And we get kind of a sneak peek, we get a kind of a spoiler alert of that great blessing that's going to bless the whole world in the same way that the blood of a spotless lamb allows the wrath of God to pass over the household, so too the, uh, the blood of another spotless lamb will allow the wrath of God to pass over for another type of people. And so we have this wonderful story as we see uh, after that plague, the, the Israelites leave bondage and they exit out of their captivity. And where they go is they go into the wilderness. And here you see the, the, the stone tablets at the top. God gives his people the Ten Commandments. But he does not just give his people the Ten Commandments. God gives his people a culture to live by. And this is where we need to understand another key concept in the narrative of the Old Testament that God is going to, we all know, or many of us know, that the, the chief ends of God is to glorify himself, to fill the earth with his glory, right? That's why he does what he does. And the way he's going to do that in the Old Testament is going to be this come and see means of glory. Come and see the nation of Israel and you will see the God of Israel. And that's how he's gonna use his people Israel all throughout the whole Old Testament. Come and see the people of Israel and you will see the God of Israel. And the culture that God gives them to live by is going to be pivotal for this as well. Because this culture will completely set apart Israel from all other nations around them. To the point if another nation is looking at how the Israelites are living, they're gonna have a big question mark because they are so different. And so the culture is so important in allowing the people of Israel to be separate, a holy people. And it, it magnifies this kind of come and see the people of God and you will see the, the glory of God. And so God gives them this wonderful, wonderful culture. And we come to see that God is in the business of fulfilling his promises. But sadly, something else happens. The people who were delivered begin to doubt and they don't walk in the promises of God. They don't look at the promises of God and say, you're gonna give us a great land and a great nation. What do they do? We, they say to Moses, we'd actually like to go back to the old land under the old nation and live there. And so they don't walk in the promises of God. And we see this principle develop that God will always fulfill his promises, but consequences come when we don't walk in them. And that's the story of the Israelites as we see Sorry, as we see, they are forced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, and God looks at this generation that was rebellious and says, I'm going to put you aside and I'm gonna bring in a new generation with a new leader and through that generation, I will conquer the promised land. And so that's exactly what happens. This guy named Joshua steps on the field after 40 years and leads the people into this wonderful land that God promised them. And not long after he leads them, we see that God provides Israel the land that he promised. And the second of the four great promises is fulfilled by the working of God. And we see in the graphic that the sword is representative of the conquering hand of the Lord in this promised land. And the nations are divided according to the 12 tribes, the, the sons of Jacob. And the red outline symbolizing that Judah is still there, that blessing to the whole world is still in works, but the people now have a, have a great land. And Joshua is about to die. 
And they've, they've conquered almost all of it. But Joshua's last words to his people, in Joshua chapter 23, he looks at the people of Israel. He gathers them all together, and he says, would you listen and cling to the Almighty God, the God that delivered to you? Listen and cling to him. And he says, drive out all the people. Don't let them stay in. Why? Because you are to be set apart, a holy nation. Drive them all out, and don't marry with them. But what do the Israelites do? They listen and cling to the wrong thing. They listen and cling to the people of Canaan and their gods, where they only capture 80% of the land, not all of the land. And so they kind of try to partly walk in the promises of God, obeying him, and they don't marry the Canaanites, but what do they do? According to the scriptures, we see that they force the Canaanites into labor. But do you know the crazy thing? Just mere chapters, they're forced into labor. The Canaanites are now in labor with their own kids, and it shows the reality of what small decisions away from the word of God will do to the heart of the people. And so we enter this very dark time in the story of the Israelites, uh, the time of the judges, and we see that all they had to do was listen and cling to the right thing, and they kept listening and clinging to the wrong thing. Where the sin cycle is they'd fall into idolatry, listening and clinging to the wrong things, and then God would send a nation to judge them to show them what it's like when he's not as their head. And that nation would enslave them, and then they would cry out to the Lord, Lord, please deliver us, and he would deliver them. And then he would send a judge, and that judge would, would free them of the captivity. And then they'd live in a time of peace, but then they'd fall into idolatry, listening and clinging to the wrong thing, and the cycle would go over and over and over and over for 350 years. But what do we see? We see that God sustains Israel even when they forget him, that God still is listening to their prayers, that God is still providing a judge for them even when they forget him. God is working mightily for his people, Israel. But you might have noticed what's at the bottom of, of this chart. That is a ring. And that ring is, a, is really a bright light in such a dark time. And if you don't know what the ring's referring to, if you open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth, the first sentence will be in the time of the judges. And we have this, we have this contrast of the people of Israel doing what is right in their own eyes, according to judges. And then the story of a Moabite doing what is right in the Lord's eyes as she loves her mother-in-law and is faithful in the fields to the point where a Jew comes along named Boaz and, and Boaz asks for her hand in marriage and they become married and it's this faithful, faithful story of doing what is right in the Lord's eyes in light of such a dark time. And the ring is red because we know from the lineage of Boaz and Ruth comes that great blessing that's gonna bless the entire world. But we see God maintains Israel even when they forget him. And if you notice at the end of the chart, there's this little white icon with an S that's symbolizing of Samuel. And Samuel is the last judge, and he acts as like a judge and a prophet, and God works through Samuel to unify the land, to be kind of more one and less divided, and there's going to be less enemies in their lands. But what happens after Samuel is we actually see the third of the four great promises is fulfilled, that the Lord gives the people a great na nation through three kings. And the first king is Saul, and what we know about Saul is he got bad pretty fast, and it shows with his crown that it started well, but it, it got bad quickly as he does a downward spiral, choosing what he wants and not what God wants. And so God removes Saul, 
brings in a guy named David, and he's got the red points on his crown because we know through David will come that great blessing to the whole world. And under the the leadership of David, God makes the nation great, and even a little bit in his son Solomon, to the point where you know this, this come and see means of glory filling the earth, come and see the nation of Israel, and then you will see the God of Israel. It's at its highest place, where we see David's son Solomon has kings and queens coming to to Israel to see what's going on. The queen of Sheba is one of those and so many others. And they're looking at the temple and seeing something crazy is going on there. And they are being directed to the person of God. And if I'm an Israelite at that time, I'm thinking, oh, that great blessing's coming soon. We are a great people. Uh, We have a great land. And now we are a great nation. It's got to be soon. It has to be soon. But if Saul got bad fast and We know that David really chased the heart of God first, that he was always about the heart of God chasing after it. And he had some hiccups, there's no doubt about it. Saul got bad fast, David chased the heart of God first, Uh, Solomon became the fool last. And he started with so much wisdom, but he tossed his wisdom aside for desire, for money, for power. And if I'm an Israelite, I'm thinking, we had to be so close, we had to have been. And sin steps into the leadership of Israel. And we see that even though God elevates Israel, making them a great nation, we know that's true from David and even a little bit into Solomon, we also see the nation splits as sin steps in. And the nation of Israel is cut in half. The northern nation is Israel. The southern nation is Judah. And the crowns represent their leadership, that there were no good kings of Israel. And there was like maybe four or five good kings of Judah. And it is a sad, sad time. Because just as in the time of the judges when the people rebelled and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, God would send nations to judge them, to show them, hey, this is what it's like when I am not ruling you. He does the same thing here as we see Assyria comes and conquers the nation of Israel, bringing, putting them in exile across other lands. And not long after, Babylon comes and conquers the nation of Judah. And again, it looks as if the divine has lost control, that his great nation has crumbled, uh, that they are not in in a great land anymore, and their people are spread out. And yet, what do we see? If you continue reading the scriptures, we see that God maintains Israel even as they crumble. And how do we know that? We know that because we have the story of Daniel and God works through Daniel in in a way where the greatest king of the time named Nebuchadnezzar sends a decree out to basically the whole world saying the God of Daniel is real. And he's magnifying himself through the life of Daniel. And then we see uh, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and and Nehemiah comes to Xerxes and says, Xerxes, would would you allow my people of Israel to return to their land? And we have a sentence in the Bible that says, and God worked in the heart of Xerxes, and Xerxes allowed a remnant to return to Israel, and so we see even in the crumbling of the people of Israel, God is maintaining them, because he is always faithful to his promise. And the people return, and uh, nations continue on, and there's this there's this point at some point of like 400, 350 to 400 years of silence, and there's this, this big question mark because the Israelites, many of them have returned. They've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple, and they're just kind of waiting in anticipation. 
But what happens next? What happens next is the fourth of the four great promises comes that we see that the remnant returns. That's what these little dots are for. They return back to Israel. But something even greater comes, showing of the arrow downward, that the the promised Messiah shows up. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enters into the scene. And we see the statement that God sends Israel the promised Messiah. And if I'm... If I'm an Israelite at that time, I'm thinking, I'm watching Jesus. I'm seeing him heal a lame man. I'm seeing him take away someone being blind. I'm seeing him heal someone who's been paralyzed for their whole life. I'm seeing him debate some of the greatest minds of the times, and he's not losing. I'm seeing him grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And do you know what I'm thinking if I'm an Israelite? The great nation is on its way. It has to be. This has to be the promised Messiah. He has to, he's going to set up himself as the king of Israel and then he will overthrow the Romans because he, that's what he has to do. God, we are God's promised people, so he would be our promised king. There's no doubt about it. And do you know what happens? Does God establish, or does Jesus establish himself as the king of Israel and overthrow the Romans? Yes, and that's exactly what happens, that Jesus is the king of Israel, and then through Israel, he blesses the whole world as he conquers the Romans and conquers other nations. I see some head shakings. Doug loves bamboozling, so I had to as well, right? No, that is, that is not what happened. And this is where we get back to that mystery of Ephesians 3.6. But I wanna pause and ask the question of, can't we understand why the Jew thought this way? Can't we take a second to see why were they so certain this would be the means at which the Messiah would come and reign over them and overthrow the Romans and bring about a physical kingdom on earth? Because all we have to do is look at the following steps to see how God worked for Israel. And they, they followed that, that flow of thought to see, well, if God worked for us in our, our entire history, he would continue to work as us as the channel for the great promise to bless the whole world. That's what, they, that's what they were so certain of, that the chart would end like this. But what does the Messiah reveal? The Messiah reveals that he did not come to rule a nation, but that he came to rule a kingdom, a kingdom that would not be bound by land, a kingdom that would not be bound by armies or social status or economic status, a kingdom that would not be bound by ethnicity or race or anything, that he came to rule a kingdom that would be far greater than any kingdom has ever been on the face of the earth, a kingdom that would be physical, I mean spiritual, but that would be made physical as he would send a helper after his ascension, a kingdom that would be greater than anything the world has seen. And to look at Jesus and say, you are to be the king of Israel, was to have too small of a view of the Messiah. So I, can, I, I think we can understand why the Israelite was shocked, why, he was, why they were shocked, because Jesus came and revealed something else. And so we get back to the highly anticipated verse six of chapter three, that this mystery, to be specific, is that Gentiles, people who aren't Jews, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel that I am a fellow partaker in the divine promise. What a divine gift. And again, I can understand the shock when it happened. There was a, a time where I was dating my wife, Hannah, and um, 
I went to go visit her family for the first time up in Michigan. They live pretty far up north. And um, I had sat there and hung out with them for a week, and the week went really great. And I found out they liked me, which was even better. And I had to fly out of Grand Rapids at like 7 o'clock in the morning. And so I had to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I trudged over knee-high snow because it's the middle of winter because I stayed at uh, the neighbor's house. And I walk, into, I walk into the room, and Hannah is on the couch sleeping. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. Makes sense. And so I sit down, and I grab her hand, and I'm kind of uh, rubbing her hand, speaking gently to her, and I start combing her hair with my fingers, and I'm just speaking softly, saying, hey, I love this week. It was great. I love getting to know your family, seeing where you're from. I love meeting your friends and your aunts and uncles and grandparents. Really a great weekend. Really loved it. And then she still wasn't getting up, and so I thought, okay, well, uh, I'm gonna let, I'll just let you sleep. I'll go to the airport with your mom. And so she still didn't get up, so I was like, okay. So I went down, and I kissed her. And at that moment of kissing her, a voice said behind me, what are you doing? And who do you think was behind me? Oh, yes, it was Hannah. Yes. I said that, I asked that question Thursday, and someone said her dad. I'm like, no, it wasn't her dad. It was Hannah. And the girl on the couch was not the girl I was dating. As I, as I look at Hannah, and I, I said, who is she? And Hannah looked at me and said, that's my little sister, Morgan. Oh, and I sprinted out of that house. And I, and I was in bare feet standing in the snow, and I would not go back in that house because I did not want to look at the eyes of Morgan. And after that, well, uh, I, they took me to the airport. They come back in. The worst part of the story is they walk in. Morgan's at the table, and they look at Morgan and say, how was your morning? Didn't know, like, was she awake or whatever? And Morgan looks him in the eyes and says, I was awake the whole time. <laughs> you were awake the whole time? Why didn't you just roll over and say, uh, it's me, Morgan, not Hannah? She said, it's because she felt so bad for me that she, <laughs> that she, that she endured it. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And you know something? I, thinking back on that, I actually understand the story of Rachel and Leah a little better, I think. So, but... Why do I share that? I shared that because I walked into the room so certain. I actually stood there for two seconds thinking, is this Hannah? Yes, blonde hair, yes, about the same height. Uh, it has to be Hannah. I was so certain of something that I wasn't ready for the person who showed up and told me differently, right? And, and in the same way, the Israelites were so certain of something that they would continue to be the channel at which the divine blessing would come to the whole world. They were so certain, and they weren't ready for the guy who showed up and said something a little different. And they were so certain because all they had to do was look at what God had done for them. He chose them, gave them, elevated them. He saved them, provided for them, maintained them, grew them, sustained them, and even sent them the promised Messiah. And they kept thinking, we will continue to be the channel for all of God's promises. But what, the, what did the Messiah reveal? The Messiah revealed that my plan was for you to be the way that my church would be the channel of my promise that my church would be the channel of my promise. Simply put, that God reveals all people can receive this great blessing. And I hope I tricked you on your memo. Because you've been feeling God and Israel, God and Israel, God and Israel. And I did that to prove the point of it makes sense for someone to see God working for one people. And then when this wonderful mystery shows up, that twists it, that changes it, they would be shocked. 
And I hope, you're, I hope you filled out this last one as Israel because we know God cares for Israel, but the person of the Messiah revealed to us that God cares for the whole world. And there's even prophets all throughout the Old Testament that are saying that as well, that the whole world is going to be blessed, and yet they were, they were so certain. But the, the beauty of this mystery is that now I, a Gentile, can be in the family of God. That I have to, all I have to do is conform to the person of Jesus. And just like that Old Testament story where they put the blood of a spotless lamb across the threshold and the wrath of God passed over them, so too the, the blood of a spotless lamb named Jesus Christ, his blood uh, by belief in it and recognition of my sin as I put it above my life that the wrath of God, the judgment of God would pass over me. Why? Because he, he, God looks at me and sees Christ's righteousness. And, and that, that moment in the Old Testament is a beautiful reflector of the person of Jesus and what he came to do, that now I am a part of the family of God. And we see the correct chart here being that it's not Israel being the expansion of the gospel, but rather the church, that both the Jew and the Gentile is grafted in together. And yet we know that God still cares greatly for his people Israel. How do we know that? Because Romans 1.16, that the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. So there's no doubt God still cares for his people, but the channel of his promises is being fulfilled by him through his church. And we know that God doesn't just love the Jew, but he also loves the Gentile, and this has been his plan from the beginning. And, and it is not an audible. He sinned in another world, and he's like, oh, I gotta change this. No, we see in Ephesians 11 that this, this mystery was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. For Why? Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that the glory of the Lord, that the manifold wisdom of the Lord would fill the earth. But do you catch the words here? They wouldn't just fill the earth, but that the rulers in heaven would be able to see it unfold on the earth as well, and glory would be even brighter in the heavens. And that was always his goal, the glory filling the earth. And you know this come and see means of glory? Well, God actually adds another thing where it's not just come and see. We see according to the chart, it's not come and see the nation of Israel and you will see the God of Israel. It is now an expansion. It is a go and tell and we see that in Acts chapter two when Jesus is talking to his disciples before he leaves and he says, you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it's not just this come and see, it's this wonderful go and tell. And some people ask the question of why did there have to be uh, the nation of Israel broken here? And I think during this time right here, we see God preparing for this go and tell, this expansion means of his glory. Why? Because the people of Israel are exiled into other nations, right? Assyria and Babylon do that. But as they're exiled, they build synagogues all across the world, everywhere. And some return to Israel, but many stay. And do you know why I'm convinced that God was already preparing for this expansion, this go and tell uh, means of his glory filling the earth? Because when we get to Acts, where does Paul walk into, where does Paul go every time he walks into the, a new city with the gospel? Synagogues. And so even though it was this dark time where all the people were spread out, the synagogues all across the world become the platforms for the gospel expanding to the ends of the world. That Paul walks straight into the synagogues to look at the Jews and says, the Messiah has come. 
And, and so we see the heart of God, and not just this come and see, but also this wonderful go and tell. And so now the people of God, the church of God, remember that's the means at which this, this eternal promise is being fulfilled. The church of God does not uh, isolate themselves in one city. We're not all living in one place looking at the world saying, look at us so you can see God, right? Uh, now, it is fair to say that this come and see means of his glory still happens because people can come and see the people of God and still be directed to the person of God. There's no doubt about that. Christ looks, and Christ says one time that the world will know you are my disciples by the way that you love each other, right? So come and see is still, it's still happening. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting on top of this mountain in Virginia and I'm, I'm talking with a student named Bailey asking a story and Bailey came to know the Lord because he, wa- he watched high schoolers worship the Lord that he sat in the back of a room and watched high schoolers sing praises to the Lord. And he, he told me, his thoughts, were, his thoughts were, I've never seen something like this. And it directed him to the person of Jesus. So come and see is still happening, but there's also this expansion, this means of go and tell. And we see that in the person of Jesus to the fullest extent. Because where does Jesus eat? In the homes of sinners, where does he walk beside the sinner? Where, who does he serve? The person who, uh, yes, is a part of Israel, there's no doubt about it, but he has a bigger mindset for people who aren't even Israelites. And, and the person of Jesus is one of the greatest means of us understanding what we are to do with this great, amazing blessing, that we are to be eating in the homes of other people and inviting them to our homes, that we are to be walking side by side, serving and showing compassion Jesus shows that. And Jesus is the greatest mystery. And what he revealed was so amazing. And from him, we have the, the mystery of Ephesians 6. That in summary, we see uh, that we are part of the same family. That both the Jew and the Gentile are in union because of the blood of Christ. We are the same family. And that's shown in Ephesians 3. Uh, to be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, same family, fellow members of the body, same family. But we're not just part of the same family. We enter that family in the same way, that through belief in the person of Jesus and recognition of my sin, that he came to die to bring me back to the Father, that I now can be a part of his church. So it's not just the same family in the same way. We also have the same job that we are to be about the glory of the Lord filling the earth. And how do we do that? I love the ending of verse six as he says, and we're not just fellow heirs and fellow members, but we are also fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And what I, when I think about when I think of partakers, I think, oh, I just accept this blessing. But the thing about this blessing is that it's not just about accepting the blessing of Jesus, but also being about being a tool, a help, a vessel for other people to accept it as well. To the point where I'm not just sitting in my home waiting for a neighbor to show up and invite themselves into my home so I can bless them, right? That's why I love our Bless Initiative right now, that Christ propels me to go away from my home with a plate of cookies to look at my neighbor and say, we would love to bless you. We would love to have you over for dinner. And that's what it's about. Not just, not just a blessing we receive, but also a blessing we can be about blessing others and helping them come to know the person 
of Jesus. And that's, this is why this mystery is, is so great. And this is why when I read it in light of the whole story of Scripture, I look at, I look at God and say, I can do nothing else but thank you. Because I honestly, I wouldn't have seen it coming. I know your prophets talk about it, but I would have been so certain that it's going to be Israel all the way through. But now I can be a part of this great family. The mystery became a whole lot more real for me. And so as, as the band shoots back up, uh, I, hope this was, I hope this was helpful for you to see that the story of Scripture is not just a bunch of little stories spread across 66 books, but it is one story of God redeeming man back to himself. And through the person of Jesus, we have this wonderful mystery that me and you, that all people can be about the blessing of other people through the person of Jesus. And uh, I had someone come to me on Thursday and say, I feel so small. I feel so small in light of this big chart. And I thought that was such a true statement, that that I am so small but I can be about something far, far bigger than me uh, as the Holy Spirit helps me to do that. What a great thing. This mystery cannot be beat. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we are so thankful for what you did on this earth to bring us back to you. And you didn't just bring us back to you, you revealed that all people can be a part of your family and in the business of blessing other people people. We want to love you more, Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we declare this great mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in
with us this morning. Thank you to Ryan for faithfully opening the scriptures and, and helping us see that, that plan of God just unfolding, the, the grace and the redemption of God unfolding. And the best news is that the best is yet to come, that we have a hope in the promises of our Savior that he will one day redeem all, all of us who have believed and make things right. So grateful you're here. Happy Fourth of July. Hope you have a great day. Go bless your neighbors today. Uh, the love of Christ would be seen in you. See you next time.